God told me to get free from the computer and then lock me in the corner back there. So I want to do that. that. Can you hear me? Testing, testing. Okay, let's pray. Father, help me to not say anything amiss and to say that which needs to be said. And help us as a congregation receive from your word. Thank you for these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm a father of four kids. And so I've had this experience quite a few times where you're in the room, maybe the emergency room or the doctor's office. And you look at the little screen and the doctor's going, the bone goes like this. And then it kind of bends. He goes, that's not right. Or the bone goes like this and then it bumps. They have a buckle break. Or with Nick. Bone goes like this, and then there's a chunk off of it that they're going to have to screw back in, you know? And when you look at that moment, you go, that's not right. Like, that's not the way things should be. As you guys look around uh, our world, it doesn't take you long to think that things are broken, right? You don't have to watch the news much. You don't have to, but there's all kinds of murder and violence and hatred and sarin gas and all kinds of crazy things going on. And what we're doing here is Matt is preaching this seven-part series on how to open up space in our lives for God. And he did an awesome job last week on communion. That moment when we come and we confess and we open up that space for the Lord. And he comes in and got me so excited about communion and that. Today is reconciliation. And uh, that's uh, where I'm going to do this as he focuses on the baby uh, dedication. The Christian answer is fairly clear, fairly distinct of what happened. In this, if you go to Romans 1, he says that we have turned and worshiped the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Augustine would call it a disordered love. In other words, we've loved that which is less more than that which is great. And we put the universe out of order in that sense. And so sin and brokenness and this lack of reconciliation comes as we disorder things in the universe. And one of the ways that you bring reconciliation is you get things back in order in that. So example from this textbook I was reading there, uh, I've got this great, great Aunt Irma, and she is of tremendous value, right? But Aunt Irma has a lot of money, and that's maybe not of as much value as her as a person. Well, if I kill Aunt Irma to get her money, I have disordered the love, right? I've flipped things, and the world has gotten flipped in that sense. It is always right to value most that which is most valuable, right? So today we're going to talk about vertical reconciliation and horizontal. It seems to me in the Christian sense we have to be vertically reconciled to God before we can begin to bring reconciliation out horizontally. And so the first thing that happens, the most distinct thing that happens in Christian reconciliation is we have this vertical relationship with the Father, and he opens up. In order to do that, I want to talk about just a couple of concepts here and just lay those out as kind of the groundwork of what we're really talking about. I want you to think about justice in an abstract sense, and mercy, and God filling all things. Think of those three things. Justice is a part of the nature and the character and the existence of God, right? As he creates the creation, as he makes us, we are created in his image, and we innately have a sense of justice. Just ask a little kid. Is that fair? Is that right? And pretty quick, they'll let you know that something's unjust. And simply what we mean by that is that 
you get what you deserve. Whether you do good or you do bad, you get what you deserve. That's justice. And generally, we want justice for other people, and we want what for us? Mercy. Mercy, that's right. Mercy over and against justice almost seems to be contradictory to it, and yet it's inherent within the nature of God. So it's a paradox for our tiny minds to grab, but God is fully just, and he is fully merciful. By definition, mercy is when you get what you don't deserve, right? If somebody says to me, I deserve mercy, they are not talking about what? They're not talking about mercy anymore, are you? Because you can't deserve mercy. That can't happen, all right? Mercy is an unmerited favor. It's something that's bestowed upon you. It's something that's graciously given to you. It's a gift. Now, when we think about reconciliation, we know that there are usually issues of justice. What is right? What should happen here? And we know that there needs to be mercy. There needs to be some grace extended in the situation. And we know that both those things are inherent in God. It becomes a paradox to us, but the paradox is resolved in, in James when James says mercy triumphs over judgment. So that the justice of God is fully met, and yet the mercy of God covers it. We just got out of Easter, right? What's the Jewish holiday that hangs around you? That's right around Easter. Passover, okay? What is the Passover? The Passover, essentially, the wrath of God, the justice of God, the judgment of God, is coming on the people of Egypt. And God says to his chosen people, tell you what, kill a lamb, we'll make a meal out of that lamb, and you will take the blood of that lamb, and you will wipe it across the door, off the lintel of the door. And when the angel of death comes to visit the judgment of God upon Egypt, the angel of God will pass over the blood. He will literally see the blood of the lamb and know that these are the chosen people that are not to receive justice in this situation, but to receive mercy. So in the Passover, the mercy of God triumphs over the judgment of God. And that is essentially the cross. It's what happens at the cross. The justice of God comes and is poured upon Christ. He dies he is buried. He is resurrected. And we come under the blood of the Lamb. And the blood of Christ covers us. And so as we go to the Father, we don't bring our good works. We don't bring our greatness, our niceness. We don't bring money we've given to the church. We don't bring anything other than to say that we are covered in the blood of the Lamb. This is the essential Christian message. And so reconciliation is at the very core of Christianity. Because we are reconciled unto God by the death of Christ on the cross. Pretty awesome, huh? <laughs> Good. Uh, I think the question then becomes, who will bring peace between God and man? I just want to read the scripture because I think it's uh, fairly helpful here. And it explains what I was trying to say. Much more than having been justified by his blood, this is Romans 5 and following, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Jesus. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. I was thinking about Charles Wesley. This is always dangerous to do. But there's this one verse in one of my favorite songs, A, a Thousand Tongues to Sing. And it goes like this. 
I felt my Lord's atoning blood close to my soul abide. Me, me, he loved the Son, and for me he died. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God, the triumphs of his grace. Thanks for letting me hang out there and uh, join in. Appreciate that. <laughs> Hang me out to dry. That's good. Guess I could have asked for it. But. So we live in this world, and we we know justice. It's it's inherently written on our souls, and we know mercy. But the last big concept I want to hit before we can talk about kind of horizontal re reconciliation is this notion that God feels all. So as we go about our human activities, there's so many things we do, and we can't imagine that God is actually there, right? But God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. His whole presence fills all things. And one of the things I think is really important to know when you're in conflict is that God is full in that conflict. He's full in that moment. He's full in that awfulness. He's full in that brokenness. He's full in that sin. He's full in all that has happened. He is not absent in those moments. I was reading in Jeremiah this week, and God says to Jeremiah, Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth? God is fully everywhere at all times. And I want you to remember that when we start to think about reconciliation. So we've been vertically reconciled to God by his grace and by his mercy and by the blood of Christ. And we stand under the, the cross of Christ. And in that passage, it says that we become ambassadors for Christ in 2 Corinthians. We become ambassadors uh, for God. So the rest of the time here, I just want to kind of ask a few questions about what does that look like to be ambassadors of reconciliation? I don't think we can truly be ambassadors of, reconcil of reconciliation unless we're first reconciling with God. But then how do we move that reconciliation out? How do we make this church, this space, a place of reconciliation? Whether they're just little affronts or little things, or whether they're grave injustices, how do we make this a place? Christ says that they're going to know that you're mine by the way you love one another. Is that true here? Anybody in Glenwood go, oh, man, those people belong to Jesus because of the way they love each other. That's awesome. I don't know. Or do we just do what we do in this little space, and then we go off to our little place? In your place, in your place of work, would they even know that you're an ambassador of reconciliation? That you are there to bring the love of Christ into that space? Would they know that about me? I don't know. I don't know. I pray so, but I don't know. So, as we go here, I'm actually a teacher, right? I'm really not a preacher. So what I would do if you if you're in my class is I would kind of throw out these ideas, and we would kind of play with them for days. We would work on it. We would think about it. We'd wrestle with it. If you're part of it, but I can't really do that. So, what I'm going to do is I'm just throw out some ideas here, and I want you to kind of chew on. But maybe we as a church can be thinking about these ideas relative um, to reconciliation. The first thing I would do, if I was serious about reconciliation, is I would study the life of Joseph. Uh, I used to teach early world history, and I used to be able to show the movie Joseph, like Turner movies or whatever. Incredible. Could not find one scriptural flaw within it. It told the story of Joseph almost perfectly. 
And it was the kid's favorite movie that they ever watched in the year. What's Joseph? That was it. I love Joseph. But the story of Joseph, Joseph, learning inside, outside, upside down. Joseph is, his brothers are jealous of him, and they beat him, and they throw him in a pit to die, and then say, ah, probably not going to kill him. Let's sell him, make some money off this thing. And he goes off to Egypt in this horrible, horrible experience. And he's got years and years to be bitter and to be angry and to be unreconciled to his brothers and to be frustrated with who they are. But there's two big principles in this that I think are kind of crucial. Listen carefully to Genesis 45, 4 through 5. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer. First thing. Come closer. And they came closer. They both participated in that reconciliation. Joseph called them into it and they walked to him. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Reconciliation is not a denial of the horror that has happened. See, reconciliation, reconciliation happens around things that are bad, right? It is not a denial of the horror that has happened, okay? We have to keep that in mind. But hopefully mercy will triumph over that sin and over that violation. Um, you, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves. One of the strange things about reconciliation is it's actually the heart of the person who did the sin sometimes that is the last thing to be reconciled because they can't forgive themselves because they're so arrogant. They think that they're so good that they would never have done anything bad. And so therefore, they can't forgive themselves because I'm too good to have done that. So I can't. Huh? Does that make any sense? It's hard sometimes to forgive yourself if you're the perpetrator of the thing that has happened. And believe it or not, unless you've never spoken a word to any other human being on the planet, you have probably been a perpetrator of at least verbal violence to another human being. Or at least broke their heart. Or made them sad. Or bummed them out. I don't know. Um, because you sold me here, for God sent me here before you. I just want to keep that clear. God is providential. He's in all things. Kim likes to say, and I like to say, nothing can happen, happen to us unless it happens through the loving hands of the Father. Because I really believe in the providence of God. I really believe in the sovereignty of God. The Lord, in, in Psalm 103, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. That is easy when something good comes your way. That is very difficult when something bad comes your way. But know that God is not just absent. That's not why it happened, because God is absent, or because he doesn't care about you, because he doesn't love you. Okay? He is in all things. If you don't believe he's in all things, you might have to throw out a large portion of scripture, and you have to minimize him and weaken him so that he's impotent and unable to control things. But if God is sovereign, and if God is omnipotent and unknowing and, and all-present, then he is in all things even the hard things. Again, we could talk about that a long time. Listening is an act of generosity. One of the things that we might do as a church is just listen to each other. I was listening to a TED Talk the other day, and the guy kept saying this phrase, listening is an act of generosity. What if we just opened up space for other people? What if we just heard what they said? That's an interesting thing, isn't it? Sometimes, men, women come to their... The wife comes to the husband, and she doesn't want you to offer a solution. She just wants to tell you what's going on. Is that true? Sometimes, man, she'll say something, and I, I just, um, oh, okay, well, you do this. ABC, blah, blah, blah. I just wanted to tell you. 
I don't want you to solve the dang thing. Just tell me. Okay. And women, sometimes men offer solutions as a method of love. They like to chew on solutions. They like to think about solutions. I've got a problem with my desk. I've been thinking about this solution for a couple of months now. And I'm planning, and I'm cutting, and I'm recutting, and I'm designing, and I'm working like this, thinking about the board like this, and I'm sanded like this, and I'm screwing like that, everything is up, and it's like, and I'm planning, I'm, I'm solutionifying. <laughs> Kim can't find her keys. I'm solutionifying. <laughs> we run out of lacrylle. I'm solutionifying, which isn't really good. But I'm, I'm, I'm solving things, okay? This is what I do. It's a way that I love her. So there's this church in Boston, Union Baptist Church, and the, the pastor's name was Jeffrey Brown. This happened in the 1990s. But he was excited about preaching in this rough place. It was a tough inner city kind of place. And uh, as he preached, he began to think about programs for the, for the kids and programs for poor people and the young men and the drug dealers and all the problems. And it was a tough church, and let's bring them in. And so he had all these plans, and they were doing all these things, and they pass out brochures and all this kind of stuff. And one night, um, a little boy by the name of Jesse McKee and Roberto Carrion got involved with the wrong guys and the gangs there. And uh, as they were running away, one of them was shot and died. Jesse McKee died right in front of the church, about 50 yards from the church. And he says, you know, it wouldn't have mattered because we weren't there at that time of night. We weren't there for, for those guys. There was nothing we could do. We weren't there. And it changed his thinking. And so what he decided to do was instead of me trying to draw you in here so you listen to me, I'm going to go out and listen to you. So he grabbed some other people. And at 10 o'clock at night to 2.30 at night on a Friday and Saturday, the most dangerous times in our neighborhood, they would walk the streets. And they would just begin to listen to the people selling drugs. They would begin to listen to the people buying drugs. They begin to talk to the prostitutes. They begin to talk to the kids on the street. And they would just listen and listen and listen. And what it did is it opened up a space for reconciliation. I think that's pretty cool. So... When Paul talks about our relationships in Ephesians, we all get excited about wives submit to your husbands, or husbands do this, or parents do uh, this for their children, or slaves and their masters, and all that kind of stuff. The thing that's interesting, because of the way the text is structured, and because of the chapter divisions, because we like to put these things in the middle of our Bible, we miss the most important verse, which is Ephesians 5.1, which says, submit to one another. Submit to one another. Part of reconciliation is submitting to each other. It does sound a little anti-American, but it's okay. Submit, humble yourself to one another. I submit to my wife. She submits to me. We both submit to Christ. There's a humility in that. You see, when you're not reconciled, there's an arrogance. There's a fighting. There's a harshness. There's a, this is my right. I gotta demand this. It's gotta happen. I gotta protect this. I gotta fight for me. Reconciliation's hard in that attitude. Peter says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, casting all your anxieties on him because I care for you. So that the moment of reconciliation often has to come as we submit to each other. And that makes a lot of sense within this body of Christ right here because we're all reconciled to God vertically. And so it's easier to submit to one another in that. I'm not sure how that works at work. I'm not sure how that works out in the community. I'm not sure how it works with my neighbors. But I want to think about that. As opposed to demanding my rights to them, maybe I humble myself. And it's easy to humble yourself when you know you're broken. And when you know you need to be forgiven. Paul says in that same section, be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. If you recognize what a wretched broken sinner you are, it's much easier to come to the table of reconciliation. Okay? And it's much easier to not be 
uh, self-righteous in that moment. It's a two-party process, I think. Maybe. No. Does reconciliation always have to be two parties? In some sense, it does, right? It's kind of hard to reconcile with somebody if they won't reconcile back, right? And yet, maybe not. Maybe there's a way. Let me just say this. You do what you need to do. Whatever you can do, go as far as you can do in that reconciliation. You take care of you. Because I hear this sometimes. Well, as soon as they get their stuff together, we can reconcile. We can get this figured out, right? But that's not the idea. The idea is you take care of you and you bring what you have into that conversation and you submit and fix it. And let God do what he will with the other person. A couple more thoughts here. I think reconciliation doesn't mean peace at all costs. Christ wasn't about coming to be peace at all costs. He comes, I, since I come to bring set a fire on the earth, okay? There's a part of Christ where the truth of who he is and the truth of what the world is is not compromised. Reconciliation does not mean we ignore the truth. It also means we ought not to be overly sensitive to every grievance against us. There's a place in Ecclesiastes where it says, you know, don't listen too carefully. Don't take everything to heart as a said, because you're going to hear your servant criticism. And today, in 2018, in the grievance culture where everything's a grievance, everything's an issue, everything's a deal, you know, if everything's a grievance, nothing's a grievance, right? Does that make sense? So I'm saying be balanced in that. Try not to be overly sensitive. Okay. And to finish up, kind of a set of thoughts here that all kind of go together. And again, this is one we'd have to kind of discuss quite a bit. But first of all, your memory of the past and the past are never the same thing. They are not the same thing. It's kind of like a Venn diagram. They overlap at some point, but they are not perfectly overlapped, right? Your memory of what happened between you and this person are, is not the same thing as what happened. And as you rehash that memory every time, I don't know if you know this, you begin to change that memory biophysically within your brain, right? And you begin to bring different emotions to it and different thoughts and different emphasis to it and different tones and different sounds. You do not have perfect recollection of what happened. So one of the things that happens, actual living is in the now, in the present. If I'm alive, I am fully here in this moment. You love those moments. The first time I kissed my wife, and I want to screw it up, so I waited, and I waited, and I waited. And I finally kissed her at the green shag carpet at their house. <laughs> and I kissed her. And I could feel that feeling right now because I was so fully present in that kiss that all of me was there. That was a good moment. That was a good moment. And so living is being actually in the present. Living is not rehashing the past. How much of your mental energy is spent, oh, they said this. Oh, this person did that. What if I had done this? I regret this thing. Blah, 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 blah. As you rehash the past, you are not living in the present. And as you spend a future that does not exist, you're also not living in the present. Oh, I'm going to say this. Oh, they said that. Well, we had this conversation. This is going to happen. Da, 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 da. So that often in life, if we were to take accounting of your mental day, how much of your day is spinning a memory or is rehashing a memory or spinning a future? 
and not being in the presence. Don't you hate that conversation with somebody when you realize they're not actually there? And you're saying, and they're like, uh, yeah, that's great. Appreciate it. They're on their phone or whatever. It's great. Appreciate it. It's wonderful. Thanks. You know? So think about that relative to reconciliation. Okay? Two more thoughts. You are possibly not as innocent as you think. Is that a shocker? And they are possibly not as guilty as you think. So have some humility and reconciliation. Have some brokenness. Understand that we're all broken, frail human beings. Okay? Don't be so quick to crucify that next person and to punish them for what they've done. But come at it with some humility. Great preacher Jonathan Edwards got kicked out of his church. And from all accounts, it probably was not a very just thing that happened to him. I don't know if this is the right thing, but he refused to defend himself for like eight or nine years. He said, God will take care of this. And he was humble about it. And eventually, it all came around, and he was restored in that situation. I don't know if he should have fought for his rights or whatever the thing was, but there was a brokenness in him that allowed him to just let God work through that situation. I do think often, how long, how much work did God have to do with Joseph before he got to that moment we just read, right? He's in, he's in Egypt for 20, 30 years, right? He's in prison for part of that. He's getting a snot beat out of him because his brothers took him into prison. What did the Spirit have to do so that he could reconcile with his brothers? Let the Spirit have that space. This isn't a word, but I want to say it. Unreconciliation does so much damage to our own souls. When you're not reconciled with others, and especially not reconciled with there is incredible damage that comes into our souls. And so just in a self-interest kind of way, reconcile with people. Humble yourself. Bring that space and make it new and different. God is definitely just. There is definitely wrath. I think there's definitely hell. I think there's punishment for sin. But I also believe in God's mercy. And I believe at the very core of God's being, His mercy, His love, his joy, his kindness is the beat of his song. Does that make sense? It's the thing that drives what God does. Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to his, our sins, nor has he rewarded us according to our iniquity. For as high as the heavens are above, so great is his love toward those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. If God's heart is a forgiving heart, if it's a merciful heart, if he understands our frame and our dust and our frailty, should we do any less as his children? If you claim the name of Christ, if you claim to be a Christian, can you not also show that mercy into the world? Can you not also bring that forgiveness? Can you not also bring that kindness into the place where you work? Can you be an ambassador of reconciliation as Christ asks you to be in 2 Corinthians? 
And all the people said, Amen. Amen.